Well, good morning, beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ. I apologize for being a little late. Apparently, Lord's Supper takes a lot longer when everybody's there. But it is a joy to be all together again as God's people. Uh, will you please turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We'll be reading uh, verses 17 through 21. Philippians 3, starting at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So far, God's word. Our citizenship is in heaven. With these five words lies the key to the whole letter of Philippians, and in particular our passage this afternoon. The idea of citizenship is about belonging. It's about loyalty. It's about priorities, privileges, and responsibilities. Citizenship is about identity. And it's out of this identity that our actions come from. Identity shapes our desires. It shapes our behaviors and how we live. In our globalized world, the distinctions that citizenship once made are slowly disappearing. But yet they can still be seen. It's still hard to find a really good poutine in the States. I still laugh when a friend of mine from Virginia says things like y'all and soda with complete seriousness. One of the clearest places that we see our citizenships uh, in our day is in sports. We cheer for our country in the Olympics or in the World Cup of Soccer. What these show us is that citizenships are marks our identities and they set us apart from one another. But Paul's concern goes much deeper than sports rivalries. His concern goes much deeper than accents and dialects and languages and food. What Paul's concerned about is the tension that arises in our hearts between our citizenships. You see, each one of us, as as citizens of heaven, we have dual citizenships. We are citizens both of heaven and of earth. Remember that Paul is addressing here a colony of Rome. They are citizens of Rome, even though Rome is very far away from them. And so Paul is using this very familiar and very important idea of being a citizen of a city that is far away to drive home his point. The Philippian church understands what it means to take their identity from a city that is far away. And Paul wants them to think about what this means in terms of their heavenly citizenship. What he wants us to see is that if we are children of God, we all have these two citizenships. We, are, we have an earthly citizenship and a heavenly citizenship. What Paul is concerned about is which one of these citizenships is more influential on our lives. 
Where does our ultimate loyalty lie? Which one of these citizenships is the primary one? The earthly citizenship or the heavenly one? Well, this is Paul's focus in our passage this morning. Which nation or which city directs our lives? Which city has more influence on how we live? And what he does is he gives us two characteristics of the kingdom of heaven. Two characteristics that set us apart from the kingdom of this earth. What Paul is doing is calling us to pursue these two characteristics. And the first one is that citizens of heaven imitate heavenly heroes. And the second is that citizens of heaven have heavenly hope. So first, Paul tells us that citizens of heaven imitate heavenly heroes. Whether we like it or not, we all have heroes. A hero is simply someone that we look up to. They are people we appreciate because of who they are or because of something that they have accomplished. It can be a friend of yours who seems to have got the whole mom thing down, who can stay organized and who can stay in control while children run around. Or maybe it's that older man or woman in your life whose wisdom and comfort you look to often. We all have heroes. One of the things about these heroes is that we often imitate them, either consciously or unconsciously. We imitate them because we have, they have qualities or strengths that we appreciate and admire. Now this desire to imitate comes from within us because imitation is a natural way for us to learn and grow. We use it from the very beginning of our lives all the way to the end of our lives. As children, we pick up on how our parents view the world. This means that the children in your life are watching you right now. How you act, how you react, how to everything that you do, your children are watching you through it all. They are soaking in the way of life that you live. They're empty sponges and they learn very quickly. Honestly, sometimes it's a little scary because they pick up not only the good things that we do, but they also pick up the not-so-good things that we do. But imitation is also an intentional way that we learn. I was an electrician for about 10 years, and to become an electrician, I needed to do an apprenticeship. This means that I wasn't allowed to be on my own. I needed to have someone with me at all times to make sure that I did my work correctly, to make sure that I didn't blow anything up. And the whole idea is that I would learn by watching and then imitating what they did. This was intentional imitation. And this is what Paul is talking about in our passage here, when he calls the Philippian church to imitate him and other good examples. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul wants us to see here is that imitation is an important way that we learn and grow in the Christian life. It's one of the ways that God has designed his church to grow. We see this in the fact that when Paul says, join in imitating me, he is commanding them to imitate the lifestyle that he has been talking about in this letter. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. This means that we're supposed to have heroes. We're supposed to imitate other people. We are supposed to be learning from those around us about how to live in this world as citizens of heaven. Now this tells us something about the Christian life, doesn't it? 
It tells us that the Christian life isn't one that's supposed to be lived by ourselves. Paul emphasizes this when he says, join in imitating me. He's calling each individual to join together as the church in imitating him. He's calling us to help each other out. Citizens of heaven are not to live life by themselves. They aren't supposed to be all alone. There is no such thing as a citizen of heaven living all by himself or herself, separated from everyone else. No citizens of heaven are supposed to be living together and learning from one another what it means to live as citizens of heaven. Now there's something about this that deep inside of us perhaps we don't like, isn't there? Some of us don't like to depend on others. We don't like to follow others. We like to be independent. We like to do things on our own. We don't think we need help. We like to think of ourselves as a lone rock or an island. But Paul challenges this feeling in us when he doesn't suggest but commands that the church join together and to imitate worthy examples of godliness. Having heavenly heroes is biblical. It is for our good. Having heroes in the faith that we imitate and learn from is to help us grow, to help us become more and more like Jesus Christ. When I look back to when I was an apprentice, to my shame, I have to admit that I was a rather mouthy apprentice. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I had all of the answers, but how ignorant I was. I look back now and see how little, so very little, I knew, but came, but came to know so much because of all of the different people who taught me how to be an electrician. But this doesn't mean that everything I learned was good. I also learned bad habits. From some of my journeymen, I learned what not to do. Some of those I learned from were not very good examples. And Paul knows this. He knows how dangerous it is to have bad heroes that are, uh, this is why he very clearly says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul wants to be very sure here that our heroes are worthy heroes, that they are heavenly heroes. But what is the example that Paul is pointing to? What are we to imitate from him and from others? Well, Paul here is getting at the end of his letter, and he's getting to the end of his main argument. This means that he's starting to look back to what he's been talking about since chapter 1, verse 27, when he first started talking about living as a worthy citizen of heaven, living in a manner worthy of the gospel. And since then, he's told us to place the interest of others above our own, just as Christ Jesus did. He called us to endure hardship with joy because our hope is in heaven, not in what happens in this earth. He called us to keep pressing on in our sanctification, to keep pressing on towards godliness. And he's called us to humility that recognizes that we are sinners in need of grace, that we are racers who have not yet made it, but recognize that we've got so much further to go. This is what Paul is pointing us back to. This is the example he wants us to follow, the example that he lived and that others around us live. 
But notice that Paul is not expecting us or calling us to follow perfect heroes. He doesn't do this because they simply don't exist. Only one ever existed, and that was Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. When Paul calls us to imitate heroes of heaven, what he wants us to find are those who are broken, yet are following the perfect example of Christ. You know these people. These are people who show you in their words and their actions what it means to follow Christ. They demonstrate Christ-likeness. They show you how to live in this world as a citizen of heaven. They show you an incredible humility in that they point you always away from themselves and always towards our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what heroes of heaven are. They are not perfect people. No, they are broken sinners who have tasted deeply of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. They have been shown incredible mercy and they seek to live the whole of their lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They rest in Christ's righteousness, not their own. Their confidence is Christ and in his achievements, not what they have done. So Paul calls us to imitate good examples. And he points us to good examples. But he also shows us what bad examples look like. He says in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Who exactly Paul is referring to here is unknown. Because of Paul's obvious connection with them, why he sheds tears over them, it it seems that he's referring to some people he knows who has identified as Christians, but whose lives did not show it. They did not walk the walk. Their behavior contradicted their confession in Christ. Instead of living as citizens of heaven, they lived as citizens of earth. Paul says in verse 19 that their God is their belly. This means that they show no self-control, but they give in to any and every appetite, every desire that they have. Any bodily desire they feel, they need to have it fulfilled, whether it's sexual or food or adventure or the need for more or bigger or better. Citizens of earth live only for the present, for what they can get right now, for what they can achieve right now, what they can experience right now. Their vision goes no further than the grave. They give no thought to what is eternal, but only to what is instant, to what is here and what is now. They worship their bodies, but then they do not refuse any of its desires. Second, bad examples, glory in their shame. What happens when we live for the present, when we live to fulfill our bodily desires, is that we begin to find pride in our sin. When we start boasting about how many beers we can have before we're drunk. When we brag about our sexual adventures or how we cheated the government on our taxes. To glory in shame is to glory, beloved, in sin. The very thing that ought to bring us shame is what brings happiness in boasting. Sin blinds us and it delights in what is evil. It thinks it is beautiful. Thirdly, citizens of earth have minds that are only set on earthly things. 
Now, this summarizes the other two characteristics of bad examples. They are not concerned with eternity. Their mantra is, I've got one life, I better get what I can right now. There is no thought, there is no concern about what comes next. The things of this world consume their thoughts and it runs their lives. Life is all about indulging our desires and indulging them right now. Those who live this way, says Paul, are enemies of the cross of Christ. The way they live, the pattern of their behavior, it militates against the grace of God that comes in the cross. In Christ, we are freed from sin so that we can flee from it, not to it. We are freed from shame, not, to, not free to glory in it. Those who confess to be Christ's, yet who worship their desires and glory in their shame, show by their lives that the very things that Christ has accomplished on the cross, the very things he's accomplished with his death and resurrection, are not theirs. Where the cross grants freedom, those who have their minds set on earthly things show that their minds and their hearts are still held captive. Because of this, they are enemies of the cross. They are not to be imitated. They are not heavenly heroes. And we need to pause here and realize something. It's easy, I think, to see this list of characteristics of enemies of Christ and to reject it, to, to not identify it. That, that's not us, we can so easily think. We need to realize that Paul gives this description because we resemble this sometimes. We are drawn to serving our desires. We are drawn to finding our pride and our identities in what is in fact shameful. We are drawn to the things of this world. They call to our hearts and our hearts yearn to respond to them. This is why Paul has to give this kind of warning to the church. We are drawn to imitate those who live with no concern about the future, with no concern about the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why we need to have good examples, why we need the grace-depending heroes of the faith. They show us how to resist sin. They embody, not perfectly, but they embody the grace of Christ. When we are weak, they point us to Christ. When we stumble, they show us where grace is found. They point us to the cross over and over again. They are patient with our weakness because they too are weak and broken people who have experienced amazing grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is why we need heavenly heroes. They point us to our Savior. So where do we find these heroes of heaven? Where do we find these people we ought to imitate? Well, Paul says to imitate himself. And we've got a whole bunch of his letters in Scripture, so there's a place to start. But we have the whole of Scripture, which gives us more and more. But that's not all. We've also got the books and the stories of those who have gone before us, who've lived as citizens of heaven and who have written about the struggles and the joys of that life. But beloved, we also have the church directory. We also have the directory of Adoration United Reformed Church of Vineland, Ontario. 
which means that you are surrounded by fellow citizens of heaven, heroes of the faith who are available for you to imitate. God has placed you here to learn from each other. It is no accident that you are a member of this church, that you are here. So look around you this morning. Follow the examples that Christ has given to you. Learn from them what it means to live as a broken yet redeemed sinner in Jesus Christ. Learn from them as they point to and imitate our Savior. Christ uses us to build each other up, to build his church, to help us grow, to expand his kingdom. Do not overlook this invaluable resource. Christ calls citizens of heaven to imitate heroes of heaven. And that's the first characteristic that Paul shows us. Paul not only tells us that citizens of heaven have heavenly heroes, he also tells us that they have a heavenly hope. Look with me to verse 20. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as citizens of heaven, we have an incredible hope. We are awaiting something amazing. And that something amazing is not found on this earth. Those who are enemies of Christ also have a hope, but that hope never leaves this earth. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their eyes of faith remain on the horizontal. Their hope is that their bodily earthly desires will be filled and that they will be able to fulfill their desires before they die. They have no hope beyond the grave. It's a very short-sighted hope. It's all about getting what we want right now. But citizens of heaven have a hope that resides not on this earth, but in heaven. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. This is who we are waiting for. This is who we are looking forward to. We are awaiting his return. We are awaiting him coming from heaven. Notice that our hope is not in a place. Our hope is not heaven itself. It's not in reaching heaven. Our hope is not in being out of this world. No, Paul is very clear here. Our hope that is in what comes from heaven. He says, from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, our hope is a person, not a place. Now, Paul uses the titles of Savior and Lord, and this use is very significant, especially for the Philippians. When Paul applies these titles to Jesus, he's using two titles that were often applied to the emperor of Rome. In fact, these two titles were often engraved on Roman coins. It was meant to remind the Romans who their emperor was. It was meant to remind them that he was their savior in times of trouble, like when they were attacked or when they were uh, faced with natural disasters like earthquakes or famines. Their emperor would come and save them but he was also their Lord. He was their master, their emperor. Caesar wanted to remind his citizens who they served, who their loyalty was, who they obeyed. But Paul takes these words and applies them not to the emperor, but he applies them to Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who is the one who saves, and he is the one who is their Lord. 
As citizens of heaven, our hope is in Christ. He is the one who saves us from our sin. He is the one who saves us from the wrath of God. He is the one who died on the cross for you and me. He is the Savior. This is the hope of the gospel. And in saving us, he is also our Lord. In saving us, he has made us citizens of heaven. He is our master, not the emperor of Rome, not the queen of England or the prime minister of Canada. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate master is our Lord Jesus Christ because in his death and in his resurrection, he has bought us and made us citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, redeemed by Jesus Christ, he gives us everything that we need. He governs us and he protects us. As our Lord, he gives us everything that we need to grow in maturity, to grow in assurance, to have the strength to live as his citizens. Beloved, this Savior and this Lord is our hope. He is the one who makes it possible to follow the examples of those who follow or who point us to Christ. He is the one who provides heavenly heroes for us to imitate. He is the one who we are to pursue and to place our hope in. It is this Savior who we eagerly await to return. He is the one, he is the Savior who is coming back. And when he returns, the salvation that he has already brought, the salvation of our souls will be completed with the salvation of our bodies. Because when he says, comes, says Paul, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Christ's glorious body is his resurrection body. It is the body that he has as he walked on this earth. It is the body that was crucified. It is the body that rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. Beloved, it is the body that he still has right now. It is his resurrection body. And because Christ has been resurrected, beloved, we too will be resurrected like him. Our body will also be resurrected and they will be, they will be made new. They will be made into glorious bodies just like our Savior's is. Paul gives us more detail of this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, so, it is, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And just think about that. Just think about how lowly and weak our bodies are. Think about the pain and the sickness that attack our bodies. Think about the injury that we have, that we've had, that still ache when the weather's changed, weather changes. Think about the diseases that we have that some of us will live with with the rest of our lives here on earth. Some of us will have to and are already going through intense treatments that aren't so easy on the body. But these weak and broken bodies, beloved, they will be transformed. They will be made complete and new. No more injury or pain. No more sickness, no more disease. They will be imperishable and they will be glorious. 
And this is what Revelation 21 shows us. It shows us what it will be like in the very presence of Jesus Christ. John says there, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God is the very center. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. All these things will pass away because we shall be transformed by Christ. All these things come from sin and the brokenness of this world. Beloved, it is our hope, it is our sure confidence that these will be gone, that they will disappear forever when Christ returns in glory. And he accomplishes these things, says verse 21, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All things, all things will be subjected to Christ. All the sources of pain, the sources of sorrow, the sources of persecution and pressure and oppression will be subjected to Christ. All the wrongs of this world will be righted. Christ's return will be a victorious return. It's going to be a glorious return. When Christ returns, we will see his power clearly on display. It's the power that created this world. It is the power that resurrected Christ from the dead. It is the power that resurrected your soul and my dead heart from the spiritual death. The power that is in us right now through the Holy Spirit. And this same power will resurrect our broken bodies from this earth and it will transform them to be like his glorious resurrection body. And it is the same power that will bring the final and the conclusive defeat of all that is evil, of all that is sin, all that is unholy in this world. Beloved, this is what we look forward to with Christ's return. This is the hope that you and I have. This is the hope that promises so much more than anything that this world can offer us. The kingdom of this world cannot offer such hope. The only hope it can offer is limited to this world. Ultimately, it offers, all it offers is destruction. Paul says of the enemies of Christ, their end is destruction. It is the power of Christ, beloved, that will bring that destruction. It is the power of Christ that will cleanse his world from all that is evil, from all that denies the cross of Christ. But our hope, our sure confidence is in Jesus Christ. We await his return. We await his glorious, victorious descent from heaven and we await the day when he will cleanse this world from all of the brokenness and all of the pain and all of the sorrow. This is our hope and it is found only, only in Jesus Christ. Beloved, you are citizens of heaven. You serve a master who is full of grace and mercy and love for you. 
And in that love, he gives you heavenly heroes to imitate, to help you grow in Christlikeness, to help you learn to live in this world as a faithful citizen of heaven. But he also gives you a heavenly hope, a hope that is not found on this earth, but a hope that comes from the heavenly throne above. We await Christ himself. We await his victorious and glorious return. So let us use the gifts that our glorious king has given to us this morning. In faith, let's imitate heavenly heroes and let's look forward and upward in hope for his glorious return. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, our hearts are constantly torn between the two citizenships that are ours. Our affections and our desires are regularly pulled to the temptations of this life. They call for our love. They call for our devotion and for our worship. They call for our undivided attention. Father, we pray that you will continue to sanctify us so that our hearts are more and more focused on you. We thank you that in your grace you have placed us in the church, that you have placed us in a group of people who are citizens of heaven just as we are. We thank you that you have provided them so that we can imitate them, that we can learn from one another what it means to live as faithful citizens of your kingdom. We also thank you for the incredible hope that we have, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of your return the hope of our bodies being transformed into glorious bodies like yours, the hope of your final victory over the powers of sin and evil. Father, may your love fill us full. May your glory be our joy. May your commands be our path. And may your cross be our resting place. In Christ alone we pray, amen.